Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. Uneasy Lie the Drowned by Donald Wandre. He watched the graying sky anxiously, but without fear, and kept his ears attuned to the gusts of wind that pulled the waves higher. He had made many direct crossings of lakes in the past alone, both in high-riding and heavily-laden canoes. This lake was new to him. It was miles across. He did not know its depths and shallows, its lily-clusters, beds of weeds, or the way it responded to squalls. The sky had been clear when he started out. A deep, rhythmic stroke of the paddle, and a twist of the blade. Out and forward— down and back again. Each time that he brought the paddle astern, an expert drag on the blade kept the canoe on its straight course. It was a simple trick. He could go on for hours, stroking steadily on the right, but midway to his goal, and still unwearied, he switched over to the left. As often happened in fall along the border lakes, a squall was brewing. A mass of slate-black clouds bloomed out of Canada, and swallowed the setting sun. He changed his pace, increased the power of his thrust and pull, sent the canoe skimming more swiftly across the waters. The lake, hitherto calm, began to spawn groups of nervously racing ripples. The wind chased them in all directions over the surface. They vanished, and left a deceptive tranquillity, until more of the uneasy whirls and lines skittered along. A swell gradually made its presence in slow undulations, then in an occasional small wave that broke, and always higher swells and more strongly marked crests. The water itself, leaf-green at mid-afternoon, darkened as the sun disappeared. The green turned to a sodden blue, and went down to a dull black. And far under that black, four hundred feet or more, lay the solid rock that formed the deep-gouged bed of all these northern lakes. Rock, and the sediment of centuries, saturated logs, perhaps the wrecks of sunken boats and bodies of the drowned, for the pike and the muscalunge to forget. Even the stillness had given way to disturbing sound. The constant, quiet slur of waters divided by the canoe became a slap at irregular intervals, and with mounting force. The canoe, no longer gliding at even balance, began to rise a little, dip a little, and the lake smacked the forekeel. From the far distance came the advance echo of a mighty rushing howl. The dark mass of pine and spruce that lined the shore, now less than two miles ahead, stirred with mournful unrest. The air grew colder, during all the summers that Morse Calkins had spent canoeing and hunting, camping and fishing through the lakes and forests of northern Minnesota, he had not until now experienced a doubt of his mastery. His alarm crept up from his heart to his brain, because he could not account for the apprehension. He had been lost in the woods, had rescued himself from a capsized canoe, outdistanced forest fires, escaped the charge of a full-grown moose— he had survived many a squall, yet the germ of an obscure panic haunted him. 
less than two miles to the camp where the three companions of this expedition awaited his arrival. There came a lull, as though a gigantic, invisible hand closed over the canoe. It lost momentum. Instantly aware of the drag, he could not understand it. None of the possible causes that he was familiar with seemed adequate reason. A bed of weeds, there was no shallow here, only bottom hundreds of feet down. An added weight, he had not yet shipped water. The pressure of wind. The wind blew fitfully, not steadily, not enough to retard him. A drift of current, perhaps, but currents were more common to rivers than lakes. The canoe lagged further. His senses, alert to every mood of the craft, warned him of pressure astern. For some strange, incomprehensible motive, he kept his eyes glued on the dark forest and the black mountains of clouds ahead. The prow of the canoe tilted upward higher than it should rise to crest a wave. He stroked suddenly, deeply, the muscles knotting at his shoulders and the veins rising on his arms, while his knuckles stood out in naked, bony lumps. The canoe slowed to a standstill. The bow rode still higher. All his strength and power, his hardest paddling, could not move the canoe. He saw the sweat seep from wrinkles at his wrist, but the sword hairs were half erect. Odd, hot and cold. He couldn't be both. Morse turned and glared all at once, as if expecting to find someone else in the canoe, someone to curse. There was no one else in the canoe, yet. But there was a hand clutching the stern, and the fingers of another hand crawled into sight, sliding over the rim. Morse watched them with an expression of detachment. It was almost a silly expression, for the anaesthetic of shock had paralyzed him in one instantaneous flood. A pair of hands? Well, why not? A swimmer, whom he hadn't noticed, or the exhausted survivor from a boat that had foundered, but the hands wouldn't have inched their way up with so stealthy an approach. These thoughts floated vaguely somewhere in back of his reeling consciousness. No swimmer, no living human being, ever possessed hands of such soapy fatness. They slid along the side, those plump, bloated fingers, and found a grip. He couldn't make out a trace of knuckles or joints or veins. The nails were entirely missing. Only thick coils remained, like enormously pudgy grey-white worms. Above the stern rose a tangle of hair. It was wet, matted. Then the forehead and eyes and face, except that of these there existed only a swollen, fissured blob, the features of one drowned and immersed for months. To Morse, it seemed that his arms and legs would never carry out his command, that his body drifted through lazy gestures akin to a slow-motion picture. Yet he found himself bringing the oar-blade down again and again on those horrific hands. He was not aware of having made a mad lunge forward that almost capsized his craft— or of whirling around and lifting the oar above his head. Only as hammering upon the fingers and head of the corpse, there in all that tumult of wind and waters, formed a positive reality. He could not pound or pry them loose. The lips curled around the distended, protruding tongue. 
an illusion bred of darkness and terror. It couldn't be, nor the gasped whistle of an inarticulate attempt at speech, like the hiss of steam escaping. He didn't hear it. He couldn't hear it above the rumble and boom of thunder. Thunder, of course. In the old days, cannon had been fired to royal quiet waters and bring to the surface bodies of the drowned. The thunder, the roaring, reverberating claps and wild wind over the lake had raised this dead thing from its lodging. The rest was imagination. Mustn't let his nerves go. He heard a husky, gurgling rattle. Once he had listened to a dying soldier, whose message bubbled away upon the bullets that had punctured his lungs. This was a sound more appalling, because of its deliberation, and the words choked on the wind. Don't, Morse. I came up to see you. I had to see you. I was Pete Leroy. Morse didn't know that he shouted. There was frenzy in his voice. It rode the storm. Go back where you came from. I don't care who you are. I've got to make camp. A storm's coming up. Get away from here, damn you. Why don't you go back? The oar thudded, slipped off those fat fingers. Morse wondered what insane impulse drove him to talk aloud. You can't talk to the drowned. I can't go back, Morse. I've got to know you. I've got to talk to you. I had to come up. You see, my canoe sank, and I drowned. No, no, go down where you belong. Was that crazed babble his? What made him answer ghost words that he dreamed? I will, but not yet. I drowned by accident, Morse. It shouldn't have happened. I wasn't prepared. I hadn't lived as long as I was supposed to. I ought to have gone on living. If I had, I'd have met you. I'd have become a friend of yours. We would have made plans together. We would have seen a lot of each other. The thick, blurry speech submerged the gusts that now began to lash the rising waters. Morse wished that the gale would scream down a millionfold louder, and blast into oblivion those corrupt words and that hoarse voice. Morse panted, and he himself found time to doubt if he made such soft, persuasive answer. I don't want to know you, whatever you are. But I want to know you, Morse Calkins. You see, if I hadn't drowned months ago— Was it months? I don't remember. Time doesn't mean anything to me now. If I hadn't drowned, if I had managed to get across the lake safely, I'd have known you well by now. So when I felt you pass over me, something tugged me. You pulled me up where I could see you. No! No, I didn't have anything to do with it! Get back! Oh, yes, you did, Morse. You compelled me to come up. Pete Leroy. You never heard the name before, did you? I don't want to hear it again. Let me go. I've got to reach camp before the storm breaks at its worst. Why don't you just let go and drop back? I will, but not yet. I have something to do that I didn't have time to do when I was Pete Leroy and living. I'm dead now. Maybe I'm not Pete Leroy. But the part of me that remembers Pete Leroy knows what he would have done if he'd kept on living. That part of me felt you coming over the surface of the lake. I had to rise up. 
I had to come as I am, and I'm here as I am, because there's a mission I've got to carry out. It's the same mission that I couldn't carry out when I drowned, but that I must have carried out if I'd gone on living. Morse was hitting, slashing, jabbing again with the oar. The flat of the blade struck the monstrous head with sickening, mushy thuds. He pried at the rotten fingers, but they slid along the side and clung as though glued to the withies. He was breathing harshly. The spray that had begun to blow made his own hand slippery, and glistened wetly on the grey-white thing at the stern. "'Please,' Morse said thickly, and again, "'Go away! Go down!' And then suddenly his voice went screeching up to a high, thin crescendo. "'Let go, damn you! You're dead and drowned! Get down and rot where you belong!' The fingers, bashed into loathsome pulp by the blows from the oar, curled over like talons. What was left of Pete Leroy said in the same guttural drawl as before, "'Yes, Morse, I'll go when I've accomplished my mission. I've got to go down where I belong, then. I haven't told you why I came. Don't you want to know? You said you had to see me. You've seen me. Isn't that enough? Are you going to hang on till doomsday? Don't you know why I came? What my mission is?' "'For God's sake, let go!' Morse's voice was getting raw. His howl ended on a sort of piping whistle. His eyes were beginning to glare. He had forgotten the storm. He didn't realize how dark it had become, how blackness came rushing across the lake to merge with the rioting waters. His whole world had narrowed to those pulpy hands and the fat, featureless face that lay under the tangle of hair. The horrible voice gurgled again, with a noise of drowning, a rattle of death. It's a strange destiny that drives me, Morse. I don't understand it any more than you do. Sometimes I think I almost know. Then it slips away from me. In the life that I should have lived, I would be here now to kill you. To—to to kill? Morse choked. There was a gagging in his throat that he couldn't gulp away. Yes, to kill you. You see, Morse, if I'd gone on living my natural life, I'd have got to know you. We'd have been friends for a while, and then we'd have quarrelled and turned bitter enemies. We'd have hated each other as much as we liked each other before, but we'd have tried to suppress our hatred, because we'd have been on this long camping trip. And then today we'd have started across this lake, and our hatred would have flared into the open, and you'd have made a dive for me, and I'd have knocked you overboard and paddled away, leaving you to drown. It's you who should have gone down, Morse Calkins, and I who should have gone on living. The slow, creepy speech died away. Morse saw tiny rivers running down the face and the hands from the torrents of rain, that now deluged the lake. The wind had stormed up to a gale, and the waves had begun to crash in foaming whitecaps. Into the dips dropped the canoe, and slid up the six-foot crests, and shipped the breaking spume. Morse lurched drunkenly. His eyes felt like flaming coals. His hair was plastered to his scalp. Streams of rain trickled down his face, sloshed down his back, squished into his boots. 
The grey-white visitor bobbed with the rise and fall of the canoe. The soft, fat hands did not relinquish their grip. The dead, decaying head stayed always at the stern. With a cry that was more like a hoarse bleat, Morse dived for the fingers, yammering as he tried to pull them loose. Their touch was a dreadful sensation that made him gag in crazed horror. He beat and pounded them while the rain glistened like tears on his yellow face. The double weight on the stern stood the canoe straight on end as it started to mount a roaring whitecap. It plunged beneath the surface. Morse pitched out. The pudgy hands, oddly, seemed to be clinging to his, and then they had somehow enfolded him, and he was beating frenziedly at something that had long been pulp. His last upward glance showed him only raging blackness and the drive of rain. He was still fighting when the waters closed over his head. <laughs>